Well, last week we read all uh, through all of Genesis 17 and to Genesis 18 down to verse 15. And we're going to do that almost again today. We're going to be in Genesis 18. And though there were three major points or questions to cover, we settled for just one last week. Uh, that topic of circumcision and the promise that it pointed to uh, of the seed of Abraham. That the promised offspring, capital O, because we're talking about Jesus, that would bless the nations, would come through the descendants of Abraham and then Isaac. And up to that point, that's all they knew, right? Abraham and Isaac. We also looked into how circumcision in the days of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant has its correlation to the sign of birth in the New Covenant. Not just birth of a baby, but to be born again. Of course, we're talking about baptism. And, as we said last week, that offer still stands. If you've put your faith in Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, and you need to follow his command, be baptized, please know. Uh, let us know so we can take care of that. Okay, we want to help you to follow the Lord and obey him in that way. Now, this week, we're going to look more closely at chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. And with that, answer uh, the two other questions that we never got to last week. One of them being, is anything too hard for the Lord? And what is the right way to understand that question? Uh, we'll look into how not to understand that question and then how to rightly respond to it. There is a right and a wrong way. And then number two, why has God commanded us to do things that uh, won't be successful unless he acts? Unless he does something. Have you ever thought about that? Remember Sarah was barren, 90 years old. Uh, nobody could actually keep the law as we think about our salvation. You can't even make a person get saved. God saves people. Why does God command us to do things that we can't finish on our own? Things that actually only he can do, that he can complete, that he only can fulfill. And that question might sound like a discouragement, but if we understand it correctly, it will be for us a major source of joy. Of joy in him. So let's look into God's word in Genesis 18, starting in verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So he's sitting there getting shade. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Uh, the behold there implies that those three men just sort of happened to be there. He didn't see them coming from a mile away and just watch as they slowly walked and approached. It would have been a really long scene in the story if we're watching out in a movie, right? It wasn't like that, okay? He was standing there in the shade of his tent door, looking around, and all of a sudden, these three men were just there, walking up to Abraham. It says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, oh, Lord... If I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Why would Abraham do this? Certainly he didn't run and bow down and call everyone Lord. Uh, the word there is Adonai or master. He didn't do that every time he saw a visitor come by, for sure. Perhaps Abram had come to understand what it was like when God was showing up. Now, this wasn't his first rodeo, was it, in this kind of a thing? Abraham must have known at least that there was, there was some cause for reverence here. And then Abram offers his hospitality in verse 4. He says, let, and the Hebrew here is a polite request, may I please, 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. That sounds nice. Nice little spot in the shade during the heat of the day. Some cool water for my feet. A nice cold drink. Nice, right? He says, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. Now, when Abraham says, since you have come to your servant, uh, what he's saying is this. You, you wouldn't have walked up to my tent if you didn't need something. If you pulled up alongside a speaker at a drive through at a fast food restaurant, you wouldn't expect the voice to come over the speaker and say, what are you doing here? <laughs> right? If you pulled up, uh, we'll say Chick-fil-A, since not, there's none of those here. Nobody can want that today, right? Sorry. They're going to say, welcome to Chick-fil-A. How may we serve you? And they won't even say, would you like a cheeseburger? Because it's Chick-fil-A, right? There's something you came for. And it's in the, in the fast food restaurants it's in the realm of food and drink, right? Abraham is saying here just cordially in, in common uh, course of the day, you've come here for a reason. Let me help you with these things. Let me help you with these things. He's showing them hospitality. Verse 6, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds. So now we're thinking about culvers. He took curds, and he took milk, and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And I would imagine that means that he just stood close by to, to serve them and make sure that they were taken care of. He was their waiter, if you will. I don't think he was just standing there watching them eat. That would be a little bit awkward. However, if he was, let's not be upset with him, because if, if God had showed up to your house for dinner, would you watch him do everything he's doing? Probably would. Probably would. Okay. Uh, furthermore, this is, this is not just a morsel of bread. Three sayas of fine flour would have been like 20 quarts of flour. That's a lot of bread. And an entire calf for three is a bit much. Okay, this was a meal prepared for a king. Verse 9, they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. If Abraham didn't know who this was already, this might have helped. And notice that God, we know from verse 13 that this is God, appearing to Abraham as though a king made sure to lead lead this conversation out with the knowledge that Sarah is his wife. Remember the sister plan? Okay, God's not letting that happen today. It's not going to happen today. It says then, and then God, uh, he gives specifically a a specific timetable to his promise from chapter 17, and prior to that even in verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely... And this is the sovereign God making a sovereign decree. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Abraham is 99. Sarah is 90. And God says, it's time. By this time next year, your son that I have promised you will be born. And Sarah... It says, listening. She was listening at the tent door behind him because what else was she going to be doing at that time? And and realize when God asked where Sarah was, he already knew that she was right there on the other side of that material of the tent. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old 
Advancing years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So the natural course of action for procreation is out of the question. It's not possible. It's not happening. And so, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord, Abraham, is old, shall I have pleasure? And the word in the Hebrew here for pleasure refers to physical pleasure, or even to lust. So she is talking about that. So in Sarah's laughter, in her humor, she's using a little bit of hyperbole or going over the top in stating that she doubts that she and Abraham could even accomplish that which is necessary to conceive a child. She's, she's saying that kind of in mockery, okay? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Remember, Sarah said all that to herself. All that. And God knew everything she had just thought. Yikes. But God says this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The word hard there means wonderful. The Hebrew word there is wonderful. Remember last week I told you that in Isaiah 9, talking about the prophecy of the coming Prince of Peace. He is our wonderful counselor. Same word. Is anything too hard For the Lord. Think back to the beginning of chapter 17. Before giving Abraham his new name. uh, Going from Abram to Abraham. And the sign of the promise. Circumcision that he was making. God revealed himself to Abraham as God Almighty. In the Hebrew for that you might have heard the name El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And he says, is anything too hard for the Lord, for God Almighty? Of course the answer is no. He says, at the appointed time, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And they think that that was, uh, with the wording there, the next spring that's coming along. And Sarah shall have a son. God doubles down and reiterates the promise down to the time of its completion in response to Sarah's doubt. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Why would she do that? We'll give her a little bit of uh, help. She's in the tent at least, right? She doesn't see what's happening, maybe, unless she's speaking through. But she says, I did not laugh. Why? For she was afraid. We do a lot of silly things when we're afraid, don't we? How many sins of commission, things that we do, how many sins of omission, things that we don't do that we know we should do, are caused by misplaced fear. If in her heart, in that moment, we're not being too hard on her, and just we can do this too, right? But in that moment, in her heart, is her fear placed in Almighty God, where nothing is too hard for him, and she says, what's happening? Next year I'm going to have a son. No, her fear is, I'm in trouble. I didn't do anything, right? Fear being misplaced. And God said, no, but you did laugh. Okay. Remember, Hagar called God El Roy, the God who sees. And Sarah now knows God is the one who sees in my heart, in my mind. He knows our every thought. Psalm 139 opens up with, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Not just a knowledge of them, but a discernment of them. The motives behind them. 
that we might even be blind to ourselves. And what do we do with that? You can respond two ways to that knowledge, maybe with like an angry fear and a fruitless desire to run from God. Didn't work so well for Adam and Eve. Or you can respond in another way. The psalm ends, 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. It invites the knowledge. He invites the knowledge. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous or wicked way in me. And lead me. Lead me. This is surrender. Be my Lord. Be my master in the way everlasting. Now, this question of, is anything too hard for the Lord? What are we supposed to do with that? Abraham and Sarah were in an impossible situation, weren't they? From the flesh. It was not time for making a baby. They were not going to have a son. It was an impossible task. But God is all-powerful. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer would be, no! So what could be my application from this? Uh, there, there is a right way, and there is a wrong way to answer that question. And without hem-hawing around about it, let's just take this head-on and look at how not to use this verse. And then we'll talk about how to use it, okay? Listen to this misuse of this attribute of God, of his omnipotence, his, his power. And by the way, I took this uh, example from a devotional that's online that was supposedly based on Jeremiah 32, 27, which says this, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Okay, so different passage, same concept, same rhetorical question. And so here's the devotional with, with commentary, okay? Do you, this is the devotional, do you have a problem believing that the moment a sinner receives Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he's saved? I believe that you will say no. Let me then ask you which is harder for God. Though in reality we know that nothing is hard for God. To save a soul from hell or heal a sick body. Of course it is harder to save a soul from hell because God had to send his son to the cross. So far we might be thinking, okay. Matthew, Matthew 9, 2 through 8, you remember this story? Behold, some people brought him uh, to him a paralytic. They're bringing to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming, because who can forgive sins? God. So Jesus was doing the work of God, and they said, This guy's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, does that sound familiar? said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, the forgiveness or the healing? The healing. They were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. To do what? Healing. What direction was Jesus taking us in this argument? The greater thing is the 
forgiveness of our sins. The lesser is the healing. What direction was this devotional taking us? From the forgiveness of sins to what you really want, the healing. Does that make sense? The devotional is going this way. Jesus was going that way in these correlations. So back to the devotional. So if God has already given you the greatest miracle that you can ever receive, which is to pluck you out of the clutches of eternal damnation and give you eternal life, what is healing your body? Saving your marriage? Turning your rebellious teenage son around? Or giving you that business deal to him? Are good things? Sure, those are great things. So the question that is supposed to be asked at this point in the devotional is, how do I get those? What am I thinking about in my head? That stuff. It's a bait and switch. Therefore, don't think about, uh, don't think that when you come to God with a headache, he says, no problem. But should you come to him with cancer, he says, cancer? Wow, not that easy. This is more problematic. I'll need more power. He says, no. It may appear more difficult to us, but with God, nothing is too hard for him because he says, and then he quotes Jeremiah 32, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And he gives a testimony. This was indeed the case for a church member who was suffering from uh, ovarian cancer. After I had prayed for her, I told her, this cancer is not a problem for God. Just believe that when God said that nothing is too hard for him, it is so. Okay, so there's your formula. You see that? There's your formula for no sickness, no troubles at home, the money rolling in. Have this guy involved and believe. He says then, in a matter of weeks, of course, she came back with tears in her eyes, testifying that she went back to the doctor and he pronounced her healed after he could find no traces of cancer in her. Can God heal cancer? Yes. Is he doing that because that is the climax of your faith? No. Okay? So we're not saying God doesn't heal people. But we are saying is, is that really the best thing? And we'll keep reading as we think through that. Then he writes in the conclusion, Beloved, if it is a miracle you need, it is a miracle you will get. God has already given you the greatest miracle of eternal life, so why would he not give you, and he says, all the lesser miracles, close quote. Let me just for a second read to you what Jeremiah 32 says. We need some context. I'm going to start up in verse 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? So far, so good. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city, Jerusalem, into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city shall come and set the city on fire and burn it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That ought to anger us a little bit. This guy just used the gospel, or at least a bit of it, in a promise of sovereign judgment for sin. And twisted them to tell you that God is going to have, he's going to give you all you want if you get him involved, the writer of this devotional, and have enough faith. 
That is a lie, and it's bondage. These ministries and these men and women who are telling people to name their temporal, worldly desires and claim them by their power, by the power of God and by the blood of Jesus Christ, they're charlatans, false teachers, liars, schemers, and they take all of your money after they impress you with their great faith as you and as you lie dying of the disease that was not healed. I'm going to be a little bit ridiculous here, but they'll sip their wine in their private jet on their way to their next revival at which the climax of the event will be the salvation of souls? No! But the fabricated healing of people and the fabricated moving of the Spirit, and there may be spirits moving, but they're not the Holy One. Does the devil work? Do demons look like angels of light to take people to hell? Yes! Can people take the Bible out of context and ruin people's lives with them? Yes. And I wrote in here on my notes, don't just yell, pastor them. Protect, care, compassion. I'm going to try to do that. And I had to say it out loud to make sure I remembered. Listen to this testimony from our sister in Christ, Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm going to cut into the part and cut out of the part, but I'll tell you where to find it if you want to hear the rest of the story later. She says, I was released from the hospital. My sister JK invited me to come and live with her on our Maryland farm. And one morning while she was doing my get-up routine, bed, bath, toileting, exercising, we flipped on the bedside television and there was an advertisement. Catherine Coleman was coming to Washington, D.C. For those of you who may not know, Catherine Coleman, she was like her Benny Hinn of the day. Okay. Well, my sister and I got into the station wagon. We got uh, to the Washington Fulton Ballroom early. We wanted to have a good seat. We were escorted, however, over to the wheelchair section where I was sitting with a number of people. Crate, crutches, canes, walkers, wheelchairs. We all waited in anticipation. The lights dimmed. A spotlight came on the stage, and there comes Miss Coleman, sweeping out onto the stage in her long white gown with a crescendo of organ music. There's songs and hymns, and before you know it, after some time, the spotlight moves to the far corner of the ballroom from where they were. You get where this is going? And we can tell something's going on over there, uh, like people getting healed. Uh, are they getting healed? Are, are they getting healed? And, and so we're just waiting for the spotlight to come uh, on the wheelchair section, like, hey, come over here where all the hard cases are. I'm reading her testimony here, okay? Before the service ended, before the service ended, ushers came to escort us all out of the wheelchair section and to the elevator so as not to clog the hallways. You don't want them to clog the hallways, right? Do you see why they wouldn't want them to clog the hallways? And I could hear the organ music on the other side of the wall still playing as I sat, number 15 in a line of 35 disabled people at the elevator. We were all very quiet. And I looked up and down that line and I thought to myself, something is wrong with this picture. What kind of savior, what kind of rescuer, what kind of healer, what kind of deliverer would refuse the the prayer of a paralytic? Do you understand why she would think that? When I got home that night in bed, I thought, okay then, if I can't be healed, I'm just not going to do this. I'm not going to live this way. 
She was at the point where she wanted to walk away. Of course, nobody can walk away if God's got a hold of them, and she didn't. She wanted to walk away. And soon she said a bitter spirit, a real complaining spirit, began to take hold. And we do know that God did minister to Johnny in a way far better than giving her arms and legs mobility, in a way that made her more precious and useful for the kingdom than she could have imagined or than anybody else would have. If you do want to hear the rest of that testimony, just Google Johnny Erickson Tata Strange Fire Conference and you can hear the whole testimony. I would encourage you to do it. And then... There is the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who writes in 2 Corinthians 12. Okay, so now we're talking about the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. Those testimonies are, that testimony is fantastic. That one is. And now we're going to look at the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Is it wrong to pray for healing? Is it wrong to show compassion and concern for others that are going through suffering and hardship? No. But listen, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Does the power of Christ rest upon us because of healing or in our weakness? This says our weakness. Our weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. For mine? For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I had written here, can God heal terminal cancer? Yes. Is it okay for you to pray for healing? Yes. But know this, his power is made perfect in weakness. Anybody can get excited about getting healed from cancer. But it takes a miracle to walk through it with grace, loving people, pointing them to Jesus, and being ushered into glory should God call you home with a calm assurance and confidence. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Where is his power displayed? And I'm not saying, hey, cancer, come get me. That'd be stupid. But when our thoughts about the power of God reach their climax in the realm of our physical health, or our financial wealth, our families, our social status, even our religious experiences, what are we really believing in? Has the gospel even penetrated our hearts in the first place if the climax of my faith is physical and temporal in nature when God has given us so much more? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Was never meant to make your life easy, wealthy, so that you would never die if you had enough faith. And yes, that is the, the logical conclusion of that belief. And this is not funny. But when those folks who preach those things die, you almost have to ask yourself, well, where was their faith? Because what they preach would preach that they should never die. Unless they just decided it was time for them to go. And then who's God? 
is anything too hard for the Lord is meant to remind us that God is the one who fulfills his promise. And that fulfillment of his promise strengthens us through the the cancer, through the difficulty of the financial burdens, in the midst of difficulties in marriage, through the pain of a, a rebellious child, and even through the process of death. Because heaven, being with Jesus, is better than living a life of ease on this sin-cursed earth. And maybe what you need is not for God to make everything around you better for your ease and enjoyment. Maybe what you need is the gift of God's grace to repent of your sin, which may have caused the financial hardship, the marital problems, or the difficulties with your children in the first place. And I say maybe on that because not all of our problems are our fault. There is sin and there is suffering that is not of our doing. But generally speaking, there are assuredly more things going on wrong around us that we give our, that we give ourselves credit for. Does that make sense what I'm saying? If we really knew how much of it was my fault, we might be surprised. And, and how many of us here are not sinners? How many of us are to blame for the craziness that this world is? Every single one of us. By the grace of God, there we go. There go I, right? So what was God saying then? What was God saying then? When asking if anything was too hard for him, well, he had just made a promise, hadn't he? He said, I'm giving you a son, I promise. Is anything too hard for me? If I tell you I'm giving you a son, you're getting a son. It was God's promise that validated that. Later on to Jacob, he says, go down to Egypt. Seems like a weird command. God said, I'm going to bring your descendants back up and I'm going to give them this land as a nation. He could very well have said after he commanded Jacob to go down, is anything too hard for the Lord? To the children of Israel in Egypt, get your things, pack up your stuff. It's time to go. Where are we going? Grab your things, pack up your stuff. Let's go. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Can he split the Red Sea wide open and dry the ground? Can he lead them by a pillar of fire for 40 years? Can he purify his people through different means during those 40 years? Can he feed them every day when there's no food anywhere to be seen for 40 years? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then, with David, I'm going to bring from your descendants a king who will reign on the throne forever. Forever, forever, forever. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Mary, you're going to have a son. You've never been with a man, but you're going to have a son, and he's going to be the son of God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then after Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jesus tells us, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to Jesus Christ, God Almighty. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of this age. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Are there going to be people who put their faith and trust in Christ as we are faithful to go? Is anything too hard for the Lord? How can we say that? Because he promised it. That's why. Do you know it's not too hard for the Lord? Making a selfish, hard-headed, sinful man like me 
think that Jesus is better than a big house, a healthy body, and a life of apparent ease. That's a miracle. And then taking people like me and like you to to grow in our love and reverence of him and the love of those around us, compelling us to take the gospel to them too. And Christ says, I will build my church. God is going to accomplish everything he has promised to accomplish. There is nothing he has set out to do that will not happen. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Which brings us to our final point. Who saved me? Who saved you? Well, we know God did, right? God did, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you, have you ever heard a new, a new believer, a new convert say, Oh, I'm so excited. Neil, Neil saved me today. And then we kind of blush, right? Say, no, 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 I, I didn't save you. We start discipling them, right? I didn't save you. God, God saved you. I just told you the, the gospel. God's the one who saved you. We're so quick to say that. But then we see people and we think, boy, they're never going to get saved. And that thought stops us from going and talking to them. But is anything too hard for the Lord? God didn't tell us to save people. He told us to tell people. Right? Who brought about the birth of Isaac? God did. Who brought about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent? God Who called out a moon god-worshipping man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldees and made a nation from his seed to tell the world about himself? God did that. Who brought a son from the womb of a young virgin woman? God. Who provided for your salvation? God. Who opened your eyes and your ears to the truth and gave you a new heart? God. Could go on and on with that, couldn't we? God does this. And we know our salvation, but even above that, our repentance... 2 Timothy 2.2, it's God's gracious work that we would be granted repentance. God gets the glory again. He gets the glory again. So here's the question we want to leave with today. Is there any command that I'm not obeying because I have gone to my own plan B? Uh, Because I'm operating in the flesh. Am I not talking to lost people because I don't think that I can convince them? That's not my job. That's not your job. Am I not talking to my brothers or sisters in Christ where there's sin or broken fellowship because I'm scared that they won't listen to me? They'll only make it worse. That's not our load to bear. We can go in poorly, right? Remember Galatians 6 tells us to restore in a spirit of gentleness, right? But the results are not our load to bear. We serve an almighty God who saves people, who brings people to repentance, who disciplines those he loves. And he has promised that he's going to build his church and all of the things that happen to his children, whether they seem like they're good or bad, he's promised to use them to make us more like Jesus. They're all good in the end. They're all good in the end. Saving people is too hard for you and me. Fixing problems and relationships is too hard for you and me. But God didn't tell us to do those things. He does those things. He's commanded us to go. And you know, that is best. That's best. We might ask, why does God get all the glory? But he's really an egotistical guy. Why does Jesus get to be the prize of our upward calling? What if I just want, you know, prizes? What does God make? Why does God make us rely on him instead of letting us 
figured out, you know, for ourselves. Is it, is it really that big of a deal if some of the attention is taken off of him? And the answer to that is yes. It's a very big deal. You know why? What's greater than money, fame, health, a romantic relationship? What's better than ease, entertainment, athletic achievement, better than job promotions, nice cars, better than streets of gold, better than a mansion just over the hilltop, better than crowns, better than a kingdom? God is. You know what's better than all creation and everything therein? The creator. God's better than all of that combined times infinity. (laughs) And God knows that better than we do. And he loves you. He's not going to give you anything but the best. Himself. If he has to take away some of the nice things in that list to make us see him, totally worth it. When we agree with God in this, when we see him as God Almighty, when we see him as our greatest prize and reward, we see him as our Lord and our Savior, then we can have joy even when a person rejects my gospel invitation. We can have joy even when our friend count drops on social media. We can have joy even even when we have to make uh, some sort of ethical decision at work that makes our boss unhappy with us. We can have joy even when life gets busy and hectic. That seems to be a number one concern right now. We can have joy after an accident leaves us paralyzed. We can have joy after our cancer comes back. Uh, We're not always going to be jumping around giggling with glee when all of these things happen, are we? There is a time for mourning. There's a time for weeping and weeping with those who weep. But when the dust settles, after the weight of the news has struck, and we discover that God is still on the throne just like he said he was going to be, our source of joy, a well that has no bottom and never runs dry, our source of joy remains. Praise God that he is who he is and that he has given us the greatest gift himself. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a giver of promises. But not because we love promises. God, you are not just a giver of promises, you are a keeper of promises because you are God Almighty. And every promise that you make is perfect. Without sin, without selfishness, without greed, without any bit of evil or pride, it is always good. God, those things are not true of our minds and our hearts. And like we even sang before this sermon began, we'll sing that song anew when we see you face to face. At this point, there's still a shroud, there's still a a shade over our eyes as to the greatness of who you are in all of your glory. God, help our unbelief. May our faith grow and know and believe And live in such a way knowing that you are better than anything and everything this world has to offer. And in the things that you've called us to do as we follow Christ, may we remember that nothing is too hard for you.
And in that, God, we thank you because we know that in following you, we can have contentment and joy and peace and everlasting life with you. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for being our Father. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.